0: Hey, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on our show... Well, Laura Kipnis, you have done it again. (laughs) You have written a book that has me highlighting so many passages for possible discussion that now I don't know where to begin.
1: You're so flattering.
0: (laughs) Uh, For the record, that was uh, not an attempt at craven flattery. It was me just being honest. Laura Kipnis writes the kind of shrewd and funny an oh-so-insightful cultural criticism that uh, makes me laugh and muse and think and rethink things I thought I knew. And uh, it prompts enough questions to fuel any number of interviews. In the past, Laura has taken on subjects like sex and gender and capitalism and porn, feminism, love, marriage, and other essential animating forces of contemporary life. And uh, she has been a guest twice before on this program talking about her books Against Love and How to Become a Scandal. Well, she is back again with a new essay collection. This one is called Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation. It is about men and masculinity in our times and in our minds, in our imaginations and in hers. And uh, like I said before, it is so packed with ideas and provocations that I don't know where to begin. But you got to start somewhere. When you were invited to the penthouse headquarters of Larry Flint Publishing, uh, there to meet Larry Flint himself, because uh, he had, I guess, liked uh, an essay you wrote about him and his publication, Hustler Magazine, what did you wear?
1: (laughs) Oh, I wish I could remember, but it's the perfect question, because I was sort of incredibly self-conscious about my appearance and self-presentation in relation to this pornographer. And I, you know, wondered if he was going to regard me as he regarded, you know, the pink, I think is what they call it in that magazine or (sighs) did at the time. Um, So, yeah, I'm sure I labored long and hard about the wardrobe choices, but I cannot now exactly recall them.
0: Can you remember if you ended up, like, choosing to dress down or dress up?
1: These are such good questions. Um, I think I, you know, hewed to the middle path, like wanting to appear attractive, yet not too obvious about wanting to appear attractive. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's, you know, I think for a lot of women and women academics, that's the general route anyway, is, you know, you don't want to flaunt it, yet you want to make sure people notice it.
0: There's so much we could explore in just that moment mm-hmm. of meeting a guy. Yeah a guy who's the very embodiment of a certain way men have of representing or of imagining women's bodies. And what do you do as a woman when you meet such a guy? Do you ignore that fact or do you, I mean, yeah. So tell me about that meeting though. I mean, you had written an essay about Larry Flint in which you depicted him in a certain way. uh, As belonging to almost a tradition of kind of social uh, satire and mockery, not just a smut peddler, but a guy who, in the tradition of Rabelais, is sort of poking at bourgeois propriety and hang-ups, right? And using every, you know, sort of taboo to do so.
1: Yeah, what really struck me when I sat down to read the magazine, um, which, at first, I was so disgusted by it, I threw it away. I, it sort of assigned myself this task of writing about it, because... Um, I had been interested in the the, the Rabelaisian mode and this use of disgust as a, a kind of political tactic to turn things upside down and invert all the proprieties of the bourgeois body. And When I was thinking about that, I was trying to think where was that happening at the current moment, and I thought about Hustler. But when I picked up the magazine, I really just could not continue. But when I finally did on the second or third try get through an issue, I mean, I did see that it was a far more political enterprise than I had understood. You know, Hustler is and was, I mean, far more than mainstream magazines like Playboy or Penthouse, which are all about identifying upwards on the class ladder and promoting, you know, like you can be a, a, a sexual success if you're a man, if you have the right consumer items and that kind of thing. I mean, Hustler is like, just the opposite thing. It's full of class resentment. It's full of um, a kind of self-disgust on the part of men about their own sexuality. It's, you know, it's very conflicted, and I just found it, it fascinating, but also politically really interesting. I mean, on the, on the one hand, sort of incoherent, but also just so much about sex and class and the, the sexual cast. System organized around the axis of, of appearance and looks. I mean, it's the stereotype about a magazine like that is it's all about male power. And what I saw quickly was that it was, you know, these men were not did not feel themselves to be winners in any kind of uh, hierarchy, you know, and 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 kind of identified downward as opposed to upward.
0: Do you think that name hustler is ill chosen? Maybe it should be called loser. <laughs>
1: Probably not a selling title
0: um, we should say you know we 're talking about one of the essays in your book, men, uh, which is a collection of essays from a span of like fifteen years, all of which mm-hmm. all of which you 've you know sort of uh packaged together because you realized they all had themes that touched on men and your relationship to them, but we should say that that essay the point that that it makes is that <laughs> you had a hand in the the earlier piece that you wrote in in kind of inventing this. Loftier image of Larry Flint, which he now, um, that he loves. He subscribes loves. to it. He subscribes yeah. to, yeah, as a rebel, social rebel, and not just a uh, guy who sells a um, scabrous, you know, flesh magazine.
1: Well, I <laughs> contrasted my own view of him to Milos Forman, who directed the the biopic, The People versus Larry Flint. And, and Forman turned him into this big, First Amendment hero, which I thought was sanitizing him. I thought he was politically far more interesting than that. So um, he, I learned later that he or his ghostwriter had taken some stuff from my essay and actually put the statements that I made about Hustler into Larry's mouth as his first person account of what he had been up to. That's hilarious. So, I have to say, you know, felt. I was a little self-congratulatory about it, but I also, there's an irony to me because, you know, you always want the men you're involved with to subscribe to your view of who they should be. You know, and isn't that why relationships fail so often because, you know, the person you're with won't, you know, they have a different idea of who they are than, than you know, you think they should be, so it's almost like the perfect relationship. I wrote, you know, what, I wrote my fantasy of who he was, and then he completely bought it or found it palatable anyway. So um, also they used a quote from the essay as a blurb on the back of his uh, autobiography under my name without informing me. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I did feel like we were kind of entwined in some way, even though, you know, the meetings we had were, like, perfectly um, polite and, you know, he was not a jerk in any way to me.
0: Let's talk about another man in this collection of essays. Is his name really Harvey Mansfield?
1: <laughs> you know, I have a suspicion about um, this thing about names that they do are predictive in some ways <laughs> uh, for in people's lives. I, I, I don't know what to say about my own. And I should say the the chapter about. Flint is called the scumbag, but it's actually, he refers to him, himself as a scumbag. And could I also just say, the, the book is divided into four sections. It's operators, of which the Flint, chapter, the Flint chapter is in that section, operators, neurotics, sex fiends, and haters. And I've got Mansfield, Harvey Mansfield, in the neurotics okay. Section. <laughs> the manly man.
0: Right, he is a uh, professor of government at Harvard, a well-known political philosopher, and Author of the book Manliness, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the occasion for the the piece in the book was was a, a debate you had with him.
1: It was at uh, the Chicago Humanities uh, Festival one year. We I had it was when I had a book out called The Female Thing, and uh, he had his book Manliness, and somebody had this bright idea to put us together on stage and call it. Uh, the theme of the, the festival that year was something about, I think it was war, and they called it the oldest battle of them all or something like that.
0: <laughs> I guess his thesis was that, you know, feminism aspires to establish a complete equality and, uh, you know, de-differentiation of the sexes, and we stand to lose an all important feature that tends to locate itself in males as opposed to females, which is manliness mm-hmm. a risk taking and uh, aspirational kind of energy that men more than women bring to society.
1: Yes. I, I mean, he, it's just a very, very anxious book. And as I read it and tried to figure out what the anxiety was about, this, you know, de differentiation between the sexes. Uh, you know, worries him a lot, I, inordinately. And I almost started to think, and I might maybe say this in a bit of a, I'm parodying him a bit, but that, you know, he seems to worry that if we don't have gender roles, you know, if masculinity and femininity um, become sort of more similar to each other, that it will make sex be not interesting. <laughs> and so I say, you know, like it's sort of that sex won't be hot enough. And I kind of say, but, you know, he's not alone in that worry that, I mean, a lot of even same-sex couples, like, recreate masculine-feminine roles or role-playing, you know, even in same-sex couples. So, you know, I I don't even entirely disagree with him about it, but it's just that, the anxiety that just, you know, this book just reeks of anxiety.
0: I think uh, Norman Mailer had, you know, expressed similar anxiety. If I remember right and it's I have to cast my thoughts way back because I haven't read him in many years and I know you've read him probably more recently than I have but wasn't he saying that you know feminism again you know in trying to flatten gender differences by forcing or pushing or or urging women to take on traditional male roles uh risk destroying their essential virtue you know mm-hmm. mothering and gentleness and all that good stuff
1: Oh, that it's bad for women. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of them, you know, rely to a large degree on the idea that there are these natural roles that are handed down from somewhere, you know. Some of them have the idea... I mean, guys who have... or people who have this view, I mean, some of them think it comes down to us from, you know, cavemen and our progenitors. Exactly, yeah.
0: You know, kind of
1: evolutionary psychology perspective. um, Some of them think it's got to do with hormones and, you know, men are aggressive because they are more testosterone and all that kind of thing. So there's always these kind of convoluted justifications for saying, uh, for upholding this differentiation between the sexes. But, what's, you know, what is most interesting is just the anxiety about it. You know, like the there's some declinist attitude. Everything is going to go to hell if, you know, men and women, I don't know, Dress similarly, or that
0: kind of thing. I'm wondering historically. Um, this is just a intuition I have. I'm not a scholar. I haven't researched it, uh, but it's that at some point historically, maybe the 20th century, you know, when traditional male roles were already disappearing, uh, you certainly didn't have to go out and kill for your food and uh, defend your home in modern countries most of the time. Um, that that's when manhood quote unquote becomes problematic it becomes something you have to assert you have to talk about it as soon as you start talking about it when you start using words like manly and manhood and man's man they start sounding really silly because as soon as mm-hmm. as soon as this this thing that's supposed to be very simple and and has no need of explanation as soon as it becomes an object of discussion of worry of um of of uh, struggle, you know, it's already lost something.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think so. Um, and you know, I don't want to overuse this word anxiety, but it's just that there's a kind of ridiculousness to some of the um, examples that get used. And as you say, you know, like Harvey Mansfield, he's not a you know he's not a stupid person. He's an incredibly well respected. I mean, a quite conservative political philosopher, and even Mailer. I mean, Mailer was. You know, I, in many ways, a kind of brilliant writer. But when they get on this subject, they just start coming up with the silliest sorts of statements. And, and you know, just something quite hysterical. Um, I mean, in the psychological sense, you know, not in the humorous sense. I mean, they really are male hysterics. Well,
0: I, I belong to a different generation than those guys. And by the time I even heard people talking about these things, words like manly... Uh, and He-Man, and Man's Man, and, uh, you know, Men's Club. Even the word man itself repeated a lot, like, um, was it Martin Mull in that song, Men, 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 mm-hmm. Men? It just comes to sound so silly, you know?
1: Oh, I think that was Monty Python, wasn't it? Well, yeah. that was
0: Spam, Spam, Spam. But oh, yes. Mar- right. Martin Mull used exactly the same uh. tune, and it was Men, 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 Men. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it just comes to sound really, I don't know, to me, uh, manliness... Uh, I guess I'm a a traitor to my gender, but it's always had a faintly ironic sound to it.
1: Yeah, I guess there was a turning point, you know, around 68 or so, at the last John Wayne, I'm trying to remember, what was that last John Wayne movie? Um, You know, I think it was around that time. Wasn't it The Green
0: Berets or something? Yeah,
1: I think it was Green Berets. Yeah, it started to seem, um, you started to ask too many questions about that, the necessity to uphold those kinds of, I don't know, ideals. You know, it started to look like something that was compensatory as opposed (laughs) to something that was uh, through and through.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, one funny thing that that Harvey Mansfield said during that debate uh, of you. He said, this lady is a wonderful phrase-turner, a beautiful writer, and she's a thinker. How did you feel when he said that about you?
1: I, you know, well, of course, I liked being complimented uh, by him, but it also took me aback. And when I was going over the transcript of the conversation, I wrote that it made me, put me in mind of, of, like, being a a dominatrix. Like, I just wanted to bend him over (laughs) and spank him. (laughs) Which is not a fantasy I'm accustomed to entertaining about, you know, 70-year-old Harvard professors, but he was so nice to me, and all I wanted to do was wipe the floor with him. And he was so courtly and kind and flattering, you know, and he said these nice things about my writing. Uh, so it was, I, you know, it was kind of confusing, and as I said, I kind of came to think that even he didn't really subscribe to these ideas that he was touting. He, he kind of liked uh, being in that position of getting women mad at him. And that's, that's peculiar. It's a little odd uh, that I felt myself caught up in some project of his. Also to have to play the feminist, to play the traditional feminist, and defend these first principles that everybody you know, already, like, has talked about for the last 20 or 30 years. So that was annoying to me. I mean, I didn't like having to go back and, um, you know, talk as though I was a conventional feminist, which I don't, I don't think of myself that way. Uh,
0: I certainly don't, after reading um, your books. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that old school relationship to women is you guys, when you get feisty, that's one of the words that are used, you're kind of cute. <laughs> you know? Uh and so was there a feeling of condescension? I mean uh do you feel like, like Harvey is part of that kind of attitude?
1: A little bit, and that's why I don't like having to rise to the bait. You know, when people just say this sorta of old style sexist stuff, it's I you know, I don't wanna be in this position of having to defend feminism or, you know, get all in a huff about it. So I really just try to be ironic. And so throughout the debate with him, a lot of what I did was just try to sort of make fun of him and, and be kind of ironic and have have a good time with it, because otherwise it's just tedious. So I think throughout the book what I think of myself as trying to do is kind of invent a different way of responding to men and even to male excesses or male bad behavior or the kinds of things that women are always feeling like we have to rebuke men for, some women. So, you know, I didn't want to play the role of the the scold and the judge and the, you know, person who was going to reform all the men.
0: Um, Well, you know, in the same way that maybe someone like Harvey Mansfield can look at um, female outrage patronizingly as being kind of charming or endearing, it seems to me that you also see a lot of male misbehavior as a sign, you know, you can see through it, and maybe it can be kind of endearing, too, in its in its own frail way.
1: Yeah, yeah, endearing or, I mean, there's a whole range of, of attitudes. That's that probably the wrong positions.
0: adjective, yeah, probably the wrong yeah, adjective.
1: Yeah, I, I think, but also sometimes I, identification. I mean, even with some of the scummy male behavior, <laughs> I'm kind of like... Uh, I can understand. I can kind of understand it. I, I mean, you know, like for example, there's a, a chapter on Tiger Woods about, uh, you know, his uh, cheating on his wife. To use that lovely term. And you know, I, talk, I try to switch points of view. Like talking about it from the point of view of all these women who found that they were part of this harem without knowing it, and sort of Tiger's point of view about, like, you know who doesn't want more sex and adoration And you know, as you travel around on your golf tour. And, you know, to some degree, the point of view of the wife, although I think I'm actually less sympathetic to her. Um, but so I think throughout I'm sort of trying to put myself in the shoes of, sorry to use a cliche, in the shoes of men who have misstepped and find points of identification instead of just, you know, finger-wagging at them.
0: Uh, Does that get you into trouble? For instance, um, your essay, uh, I imagine you published this soon after the world heard Naomi Wolf's story of how 20 years earlier, as a student at Yale, uh, she had met with the esteemed Harold Bloom, you know, the famous literary eminence, and uh, he had put a move on her. Uh, as a, And I laughed simply because, I don't know, there's something a little bit comical about Harold Bloom, no matter what you say about him. <laughs> uh, he also uttered the phrase, unforgettable, you have the aura of election about you or upon you.
1: Something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I say he uttered it. That's that's Namie Wolf's account. Um, but uh, she had expected him to read her poetry and praise that and instead... Did he put his hand on her knee or something like that?
1: He put his hand on her knee, and then she threw up on him. Yeah, <laughs> or she threw up. No, she sorry, not on him, but in in the sink. And I, I wrote, you know, he's the one who had written a, an introduction to the a new edition of Don Quixote, and you know, which has this notorious projectile vomiting scene. So I wrote, you know, if anybody <laughs> could understand her response or the the sort of low comedy of the scene, it would be him. Uh, He has that kind of encompassing view.
0: But uh, I I was wondering if it got you in trouble. Instead of just treating this as a case of straight-up sexual harassment by a professor toward a student, you point out that Bloom immediately backed off, of course, and and that the, the power relationship wasn't maybe as asymmetrical as it was depicted, that Naomi Wolf might have had a certain amount of power in that situation as well over this elderly man, um, I would think that some people might have screamed at you for that.
1: I don't recall getting screamed at and not in this round. Um, I mean, I think I did get a little too much love from guys oh, okay, who yeah, yeah. <laughs> were happy that I was taking on you know, the forces of political correctness and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's kind of slimy, too. It's like, you know, I don't want to get... Uh, hated by women or other feminists, but you also don't want to get too much love from the guys who think that you're all on their side, no matter what. So I think, uh, yeah. Oh, wow, well, Laura. So, that.
0: so have you? are you in a no-win position when you write <laughs> these essays?
1: I guess it's a self-styled <laughs> or chosen no-win position. That's right. Offending um, everyone left and right.
0: I'm curious about your own... Career.
1: Uh, It is a curious career.
0: Well, I know that when, say, Susan Sontag ascended to the front ranks of sort of intellectual authority in America in the '60s, she said, or or people said about her, that she was really conquering new territory for women. Not that she was the first, you know, great woman intellectual, not at all. But she was entering a field where men had dominated, and in many cases, uh, equaling them or besting them at their game. And she sort of, I think she sort of knew that. I wonder when you became the kind of free-thinking critic that you are, uh, did you feel like you were still, in some sense, you know, fighting that battle or, you know, pushing those boundaries?
1: I didn't have this feeling that things were closed off to me because I was a woman, if that's what you're asking. Um, Yeah, I I, I kind
0: of wonder whether you felt like you had, you as a woman, uh, someone who has, uh, you know, a smart, assertive style in your writing, that it would be kind of an uphill battle maybe?
1: No, I don't think I really had that experience. I mean, I think I came of age at a time when um, people were prepared take women seriously, and, you know, people like Sontag or, you know, before that, Mary McCarthy, or, yeah. you know, people who I ad- admire a lot were, um, you know, were writing, but also not writing from a feminist perspective. I mean, you know, neither of them, those two particular women identified with feminism or called themselves feminists or, you know, I mean, they wrote to some degree on women's issues, but not, you know, entirely. So what I actually think is that if you were writing more explicitly about gender, you got taken less seriously. And Mm -hmm. when I wrote this book, The Female Thing, I I had written a book before that against love, which was kind of to some degree a defense of adultery, and it got taken incredibly seriously uh, intellectually. And then when I wrote the book after that, The Female Thing, which was about women, it got taken not seriously at all. I was stunned at how... Kind of vitriolic the reception was, and also how condescending. That was the time I felt really condescended to, but oftentimes by women, because I was writing in a kind of contrarian way about gender. I mean, the worst uh, kind of lashing I got was was from other women, and you know I think maybe there was maybe were some kind of I don't know threatening kinds of ideas that I was I was trying to put out there.
0: Ooh, is this what you were referring to when you said, "I once got punched so brutally that it left me reeling and gasping for air"?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, What was the
0: attack on you, and what were they? uh, What what statements of yours were they lighting Uh, into?
1: It was in the Times Book Review, of course. The place that you're, you know, you hope that's where you're going to get a positive review. I mean, at the time, I think it was maybe read more seriously than it is now. I'm not, you know, sure if it if it is still anymore or not, but it was. No, it's one of those just vicious personal takedown reviews. And it was one of those, the sort of review that you read other people getting and you think, oh my God, you know, I, I'm sure this could never happen to me. And then to have it happen to you, and you know, it was just, it was so completely unfair because it it didn't really talk about the book. It talked about me. It said stuff like that I was trying to capitalize on the success of my previous book, which was Against Love or he talked about sherry-drinking academics, you know, so it was a journalist <laughs> mocking me simply because I teach, and, you know, I actually teach filmmaking. So it was that kind of, it was that sort of level of just personal, you know, takedown that that didn't have anything to do with the book. So, it's you know, it's the venue you think of as probably the most prominent place you're going to be reviewed where somebody doesn't even deal at all with the actual ideas in the book, but just takes personal shots.
0: What, what got people so rattled about um, what you said in that book?
1: Because I was really questioning what gender progress had, had been about. And I was saying that I think that there's a, a conflict. I actually think this is true, still true, a conflict between femininity, which most women, most heterosexual women still have a deep relation to, conflict between femininity and feminism Uh, And, you know, sort of on the grounds of, say, like Harvey Mansfield was talking about that feminism wants to flatten out some of the differences between men and women in the interest of equity, where femininity as a gender position is more about accentuating those differences and particularly the way femininity um, gets sort of taken up in the marketplace um, so that there's always another product that you have to – by to complete yourself, I mean that they're just two inimical kinds of conditions that women today inhabit simultaneously. Um, so, femininity is all about this idea that women are defective and need to be fixed in some way and need a product to fix them. And feminism is about saying, you know, women are men's equals and, and should have equity, you know, socially and economically and all of that. So, I mean, it, and I, I do think it's true. I think that heterosexuality is actually, and, you know, I write as one. I mean, I'm a critic, I suppose, but also a uh, a citizen of that universe, that ha- heterosexuality for women is actually kind of a conflictual state if you are also um, interested in gender equity.
0: Wow, we could spend um, the rest of the interview talking about that. There's certainly a, a lot of women now who say there's no conflict, right? That
1: well, you know, exactly. And you know, it goes back to the question you asked at the beginning about what did I wear when I you know, <laughs> met Larry Flynn. And yeah. you know, I had a reading um, the day of my publication in Brooklyn, and it was, there was an interesting discussion in the audience. And a woman in the audience said this great thing, which was that uh, her boss had harassed all of the women in the office except for her. And it made her wonder what was wrong with her. Ooh. And she you know, said it in a joking way, but it was sort of like the question you were asking. It's like, on the one hand, resenting men's control of those kinds of spaces, and on the other hand, thinking, kind of organizing your self-presentation to attract that kind of attention. So that's just one of the you know, thousands of conflicts, I think, that women negotiate on a daily basis, but also kind of don't want to acknowledge so it was great this woman acknowledged that, but I think the criticisms of the, my book, um, and, you know, I'm sure there were things to criticize or discuss, but I think the way that it was dismissed or aroused, you know, vitriolic responses had to do with me saying things that are, I think, people know but don't want to know.
0: Let's talk more about you and men. Uh-oh. The guys we've mentioned so far include um, some disgraced men. Or disreputable men. And you write of yourself, um, I tend to be drawn to excess, to men who laugh too loud, who drink too much, who are temperamentally and romantically immoderate, have off-kilter politics and ideas. You also write, men have fascinated me maybe too much. They've troubled me. They're large and take up a lot of space. Space in the imagination, I mean. They force you to think about them. Come on Laura tell us about this.
1: <laughs> well, all right, I will confess and you know this is where I have I depart from my heroes like Susan Sontag, who, who wrote so little about herself personally. And you know for a long time in my career I thought of myself as in that mold and I really avoided the first person. Like when I wrote Against Love it's it's an entire book about love and I, there's no first person pronoun in it. So I have not in my career spent that much time writing about myself or in the in the first person. So this was a sort of the first time I did it, and it kind of started out. All right, here's a confession: I have, was having an argument with my boyfriend, the, my long-term boyfriend, who was complaining that I mentioned previous boyfriends too often in conversation. And, and I think this is completely untrue. I don't think I do that very much. But anyway, I you know I said, all right, fine. I will never you know talk about old boyfriends again. And started thinking about you know had I spent a lot of my life thinking about men, talking about men. And what I realized was I would also spent a lot of my professional career writing about men. And so that was when I got this idea of putting the the essays together. And I think it was kind of this. A result of this prohibition, or my agreeing to not talk about men, meant that, like, writing about them became this sort of rebellion against this prohibition.
0: Um, But you didn't talk about him directly?
1: Uh, No. I thought, you know, to talk about somebody you're currently involved with, that just seemed very awkward.
0: We would be tempted, though, to extrapolate from that statement I just read to draw some conclusions about your current boyfriend. Do you want to um, get him off the hook right now on the record?
1: How how, how would I do that? Get him uh, off that, which
0: hook? Uh, that he laughs too loud, drinks too much, uh, 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 temperamentally and romantically immoderate, has off-kilter politics and ideas.
1: I have to say all those things are true <laughs> of, of him. <laughs> but, no, I, I, I'm i fond of referring to him as my id. Uh. <laughs> like. You know, and I think that is something I've thought about, the way that women, um, you know, myself, take up this position of the superego and, you know, play the scold. And, I mean, that's been true since the 19th century in the prohibition movement and women's temperance and um, all of these caring nation types, you know, trying to reform male behavior. And I, I did write about that some in, in the female thing. You know, this women playing this role of social scold or personal scold. And it's just horrible, and it's tr- I can fall into that role quite easily. Well,
0: we do have something happening now, though. I mean, if you look at, and I did a whole show on women in comedy a couple of years ago, but if you look at, you know, female uh, cultural figures, comedians, actresses, etc., they're as bad as the guys now.
1: <laughs> Right? That in what way do you mean?
0: I, I mean it. I, I mean it lovingly when I say it, but I mean it as naughty, as voracious, as um, uh, uninhibited, as willing to say offensive things. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's
1: a pretty new thing, though. I mean, right, I mean, it's somewhat recent. Yeah. I mean, somebody yeah. like Sarah Silverman. Exactly. or And there's a bunch um, of them now. Yeah, there's a qu- there's a bunch of them now, but. Uh, seems fairly recent.
0: Yeah, it is recent. It is. Yeah. It is. So the whole idea that that women uphold the moral standards and men violate them and they must violate them because they're the creators, right? They're the the rule breakers.
1: <laughs> the, I guess the question is whether comedy is this enclave, you know, that's detached from actual life where women get to behave badly, you know, that it's less distributed throughout the social world as that comedy is this sort of sanctioned space for bad behavior.
0: Well, what do you make of the fact that, and I don't think this is an isolated instance, and this is kind of dated, too, but uh, the guy who created Women Gone Wild, or Girls Gone Wild, yeah. what do I mean, Women Gone Wild, Girls Gone Wild, uh, it started as like video cassettes of seemingly ordinary girls exposing themselves and doing other sexual stuff for the camera, Willingly, voluntarily, uh, and I read a—I a, think a pretty trustworthy um, journalistic account of this guy's career. And women, young women, sought him out. They wanted to do this. He yeah. didn't pay them. He didn't ask them to. It was a rite of passage for girls.
1: Yeah. To well, get his. Back uh, to your first question: What do you wear for Larry Flint? I yeah. mean, there's <laughs> this—you know—way that um, the women doing that stuff. It's—it's—you know—it's for men. And it's women feeling like they're going to get affirmation in the world, or get somewhere in the world, get something back from the world on the basis of, you know, um, arraying themselves like porn stars for, you know, guys viewing pleasure. So I, you know, I'm not sure that is that bad behavior. Or is that incredibly conventional behavior just pushed to a certain extreme? Ah,
0: so do you think there's a difference between? Uh, You know, like a frat boy uh, going out and flashing his junk at at girls. uh, Mm -hmm. And girls flashing, um, which happens. I mean, it's happened to me.
1: You've Uh, been flashed by women?
0: Yeah, uh, a couple times, yeah. Um, Drive-bys, mostly. It wasn't a true come on because they were moving at too fast a Uh rate to have meant it as anything more than just sort of a dare or, you know, proving something. But, yeah. Uh so what do you make of that? <laughs> I mean how do you respond to that? Yeah. Um Is there well, a difference? I just
1: think there's on the part of um women, some women and younger women, maybe this uh desire to like appropriate public space in different kinds of ways. So yeah, I just thought there is something interesting about that. I mean if it's if it's bad behavior like, I think that's interesting as opposed to, um, you know, trying to get male attention in a more sustained way. I mean, so like the drive-by quality. I mean, that's a different thing than, um, I don't know, trying to get a guy to be interested in you by flashing, you know, your rack at him <laughs> in some low-cut camisole at a singles bar. Uh, it's interesting I, I, to, to hear it's you say this. To the levels of abjection. I mean, I think like the the woman in the camisole at the at the bar. There's something more abject about it. Where the you know girl flashing the guy in a drive by. I mean, maybe there is something kind of cool and bad about that.
0: Well, if it's abject, I I would propose that the abjection cuts both ways. The guy also, especially these days, has spent a lot of time trying to make himself look. Uh, attractive and is probably flashing some muscle if he's been working out mm-hmm. etc why is it any different on the part of the man uh, than on the part of the woman
1: well there are different views about this and one view is that men played the game better when it can't, has come to gender relations and in, in the aftermath of feminism and that women's sexual freedom has been more to men's benefit than to women's. Like, that's one view. Uh, I was reading a book. There's a sociologist named Ava Elluz who just wrote a book um, about Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's the point that she makes. Like, men played it better and retained more say about what happens in those situations mm. than women do. And part of you know her answer is because women most women still want children, say uh, you know, have a shorter time to accomplish that and so that like men treat dating as a sex market and women treat dating as a marriage market and so they're in it for different end results. That's one argument that's been made. And I think it's an interesting one. Um, you know, in the current climate, you see a lot of books, for example, advice, love advice books, which I'm pretty fascinated by, about how women can get power in relationships. And you don't see those books for men. So it seems like women are the ones feeling like they need to redress some sort of power and balance that has persisted despite you know, sexual freedom or women flashing guys from cars and that kind of thing, that there's some sense that there's, there are disparities in who gets what they want in, you know, the current situation.
0: Huh. Well, there can be a lot of things going on at once. I mean, certainly another yeah. thing that is going on, and you pointed out, male anxiety about, you know, measuring up in literal and figurative ways is uh, really rampant now. Uh, if my spam filter is any indication more of that stuff is addressed to male mm. anxieties than to female anxieties.
1: Performance these anxieties. Yes, I mean. exactly. Yeah. All
0: kinds, sexual and body anxieties, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, And money anxieties, too.
1: I think that if, to the extent that, you know, men share abjection, you know, or are equally abject or however you want to put it, and, you know, look, most of my book is about male vulnerability, so I'm not yeah. the person saying, yeah. oh, men go, you know, around, uh, you know, I, the mean, world. I mean, it is, yeah. But I mean, I think it may be that, to extent men are feel vulnerable or anxious or abject, it oftentimes gets expressed more via aggression. Um, so there's a lot more maybe masking of it going on, and, and masking it through acting out in certain ways, um, strutting or you know macho. I mean, a lot of macho displays I think are at some level about vulnerability.
0: Yeah, I've always imagined that women were really good at seeing through that stuff.
1: I guess what I was writing about, I mean, like, say, in the case of somebody, one of the chapters is about Anthony Weiner, and, you know, and he sent these texts to a college student. And I think rather than seeing through that, what most people thought was that it was hubris, you know, that he thought he, you know, that he was a man in power, he thought he could do what he wanted, he you know, could get away with it. So I didn't see people saying, oh, he was, you know, a vulnerable guy expressing anxiety. Uh, I think they mostly thought it was like this exercise of power and privilege.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, when I said, I always assumed women could see through that stuff. I I think I imagined that women, most of them could see through, you know, really um, flamboyant displays of, male um, self-regard, you know, just sort of Mm -hmm. like the cock of the walk, the Mm -hmm. peacock and his feathers, you know, that stuff was pretty transparent and that uh, in an almost motherly way some women would indulge that, you know. Yeah, nice boy. Yes, you're very powerful. That's sort of my projection perhaps.
1: Yeah, I don't think it plays out that way. Like, I just wrote a little piece for Time.com about those Uber guys and the guy talking about all the – one guy talking about all the tail he – Got because he was you know head of Uber and another guy saying he was gonna hire i don't know detectives to do opposition research on this woman who was a critic, and I mean, I thought this was all kind of strutting and you know ridiculousness, but everybody was like full of you know there was so much outrage about it, and the thing that I was thinking when I wrote this piece about the guy saying how much tail he was getting, what a great phrase was that, you know, but there are a lot of women who are attracted to male power regardless of what ridiculous forms it comes in. I mean, I didn't think it was untrue what he was saying, Mm. you know, that he was, you know, head of this startup and had a lot of money and nice suits and could get a lot of women to, you know, want to go with him, even though he seemed like kind of a jerk. So... I mean, it seemed like there were enough women who were not so much seeing through it as it allured by his power. Uh
0: huh. Yeah. And you have loads of famous examples in the book uh, of power uh, being an aphrodisiac, as Henry Kissinger put it. <laughs> Men like Jean Paul Sartre and uh, Harold Bloom and others, you know, for whom power uh, was a kind of corrective to other less attractive, you know, features. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What about you, though, Laura? I mean, because you, you do bring yourself into the book a lot more than you have in the past books, right? And I, by the way, I, I really like that. I think it just makes your essays even more uh, winning to do that. Uh, but what about you? Does, it, does, does that actually make a man more attractive? You? See,
1: here's the problem. It's a slippery slope, because no matter how much you reveal, they want more, more, more. <laughs>
0: exactly, yes. So,
1: yes. Here you want confessions, more confessions. Well, I, I wouldn't you.
0: call it a confession. You're the only woman I have to talk to at the moment. And I will certainly ask this of other women. Okay. Uh, but uh, I've always wanted to understand it. You know, like, how could anybody go for that guy, even if he's a millionaire? You know what I mean? Billionaire.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I have known women professors who had affairs with Harold Bloom, who, you know, is not one of the more attractive men around, uh, you know, and this was quite some time ago. But uh, I think, you know, if you're a kind of brainy girl, you know, as I suppose I always thought of myself that way, like, you know, male intellects, no matter what, packaged, uh, (laughs) how it comes packaged, you know, Yeah, there's definitely something alluring about a a powerful intellect. And I'm sure whatever sphere you're in, if you're in politics, it's political power. If you're in business, it's, you know, the guy that you know, with the startup, like the Uber guy. Um, Yeah, I think there is something alluring. But I guess what I was kind of interested also in, in these chapters, was with some of these guys, like, if I wasn't clear whether I wanted to be them or fuck them. Right. And I, you know, recalled saying that to a badly behaved male writer of my acquaintance at some point, you know, in my past. And and that is the question. I mean, there's this equal amount of envy and identification with the person in that position of power for me. So it's kind of a an odd experience to... Both identify, but also be you know allured by.
0: Yeah, and you're reminding me of another um, uh, line from your book. Uh, what strikes me most about these essays is my covert envy of men.
1: You should read the next line, which I think is including the ones I would also like to thrash and dismember. <laughs> how it goes? <laughs> yeah.
0: And what do you envy about them?
1: I think their their freedom. You know that men have have had more have had more freedom. I think we, you know this goes back to femininity I mean I think if you look at masculine versus feminine femininity is the more constrained gender where you know the more rule abiding you know trained into to being more polite more mm-hmm. demure you know I certainly think men have had more freedom in the world than, than women have
0: do you think that you and others might romanticize what it's like to be a man though a bit
1: I, that's Quite possible,
0: yes. Yes. In your book, you you um, refer to your carefully cultivated, I'm quoting now, internal database of animus toward men. And yeah, I didn't see a lot of evidence of animus in, in your writing.
1: That is an essay. A woman uh, writer, Patricia Marks, wrote a, what I'd heard was a Romana Clay about a man that she'd dated who was somebody i had also dated yes, at yes. some point not you know we weren't not at the same time we did not overlap so it was i was responding to the news that this man had provided her with the raw material and you know and i didn't have i i kind of regretted it that i didn't have as much animus toward him as she seemed to because you know that would have spurred probably more you know possibly a book. I mean, I you know, <laughs> she got the book, I didn't.
0: Yeah, I, think I pulled that uh, statement out of context. The entire sentence read something like, uh, he barely registered uh, in my carefully cultivated internal database of animus toward men, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, you know, light on that part, because, whoa, tell me about this, you know, carefully <laughs> well, I cultivated.
1: Can't, I can't claim to have led a life totally without romantic disappointment,
0: Oh, okay. So that's <laughs> that's the animus we're talking about?
1: Yeah, that was the context of, of yeah romantic disappointment, uh, which is, yeah, I think, as I say, fuels this uh, Romanocle of, of Patricia Marx's.
0: Um, well, gee, as long as I'm forcing you to talk about stuff uh, that you don't necessarily want to talk about, I want to ask you about the disappointment. As it relates to a statement you make uh, in another of the essays, this one's about your fascination, your love of, I guess, uh, David Mamet's, movie, House of Games, uh, uh, where you say the perennially powerful idea in the female romantic imagination, the man who knows you inside and out. Is that maybe what failed or what disappointed in some of these relationships?
1: I've been a sucker for that. There's a certain kind of guy who makes you think he knows you better than you know yourself. And there's this... uh, not hero, anti-hero, or character in this David Mamet movie, House of Games, who's a gambler uh, in Mike. Yeah. And he claims to be able to, like, read this woman character's tells, and she's a psychiatrist, and he's a con man. And so I write about this relationship between the two of them. But, but you know, she's fascinated by his ability to kind of, Get inside her head, know what she 's thinking by telling her which hand she 's holding a poker chip in because he claims she has a tell so it 's like his knowledge of her that's that 's alluring, and I found that a kind of powerful idea. I think it is a powerful romantic idea, and if you think about i mean there have been so many movies that hinge on this theme, uh like the doctor and the woman patient, and I talk about marnie the with uh, Sean Connery and Tippi Hedren, where she's the kleptomaniac and he's the husband who helps her rediscover her past and cures her. So it's you know it is a real p- perennial kind of motif: this man who knows you better than you know yourself. Maybe it's a it's a the father slash lover figure, you know, who who tells you who you are.
0: Well, I'm going to chalk up your answer to a successful deflection. Well done, <laughs> Laura. Thank you. <laughs> And move on to another uh, theme I think that comes up for you a lot, certainly in this book, but also in your last one, How to Become a Scandal, and that is self-delusion. How it's possible that people pull the wool over their own eyes uh, in matters of Mm -hmm. self-understanding, and how we all recognize it in others, but can we ever really recognize it in ourselves?
1: Yeah, I have a chapter called Self-Deceivers, Where I connect um, John Edwards, and now you have a much better pronunciation, but Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who has the famous essay uh, called, or it's a section of a book, um, But the S.M. Bad Faith, and he has this example of this woman who's resisting a seducers, you know, come on, and here's a famous, you know, important philosopher who claims not to believe that self-deception is possible, who seems to be quite deceiving himself about the position of this character who he writes on that, you know, seems very much based on himself and -hmm. and his exploits. So that was kind of fun to write. But, yeah, no, I'm tormented by this question of self-deception, as I think everyone should be, because it seems like this endemic condition. So I did think about it a lot when I wrote about scandal. Like, how do people, what is it people are not seeing about themselves or about the choices that they've made Prior to finding themselves like the butt of national jokes, I mean, as somebody like Anthony Weiner was, or in the case of something like John Edwards, you know, running for president while having an affair with this woman, shooting the videos about him proclaiming his authenticity, which were put out on the web, and the, these webisodes are still up there, as far as I know. I think you can still watch them where John Edwards is saying, I want the country to know who I really am, you know, and regardless of what happens to me, that's what's important, you know, and it's titled Authenticity. And the woman who's shooting the video of him saying, I want the country to know who I really am, is this woman he's having an affair with at the time. And, you know, he he has to know that if that becomes exposed, that's the end of his chances to become, you know, leader of the free world which is exactly what happened. So what part of him didn't realize that at that moment is the question.
0: Uh, He wanted the world to see the storyline that he has crafted carefully for himself inside of himself. That's who he really is, I suspect. Well, so
1: you're taking Sartre's position that it's conscious, <laughs> then. Oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 I'm know, not. No, You, you no. actually know everything.
0: No, actually, I'm, think, I, no? I, I'm saying that um, he, when he says who I really am, he unwittingly means who he really has fashioned himself yeah. as. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's my thought. So he,
1: okay, so he is deluding himself, so you can successfully, completely delude yourself is your? Decision.
0: I don't. I don't know. What do you think? And, and also, I'm really curious. I mean, you've spent enough time writing about it, and you used the word tormented a moment ago. Is it something you try to to ward off in yourself a lot? And how do you do that?
1: I mean, I guess what I think is that we are just split beings. That you know, you can know something and not know it at the same time because that's how consciousness is is structured. I mean, here's like a kind of, since you want personal examples, here's like a very <laughs> trivial sort of example, but I was going to the um, Miami Book Fair last weekend, and I missed my flight because I had somehow got it in my mind that the plane leave at a different time than it left. But I knew when the flight left, but another side of me, another part of me convinced myself that I had an extra half an hour And then I sort of realized on the way to the airport that I had completely convinced myself of something that was entirely false. So, I mean, you know, I do some whole psychoanalysis on myself. Did I really not want to go or was I just zoned out because I'd taken an Advil PM the night before and, you know, whatever. But it's one of those things that that catches you up short because you are knowing and not knowing something at the same time. Is that a bad example because it's too trivial?
0: Well, it's not as juicy as I would have hoped for. Yeah, but I, I, but it's, it's it's an excellent example of how we do have divided consciousness, and yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean that the idea of a you in there, you fooling you, is itself very hard to sort out. But I maybe I'm really off base here, Lord. But I just think of your essays as as elegant as they are, and and uh, including signs of real self awareness as in some ways um you you don't want to be one of those people who are self deceiving you don't want to be one of those people who other people can look at and say, "Oh, what a silly display I can see right through it right you, you want to be in command of not only your your arguments but also the the persona
1: yeah, sure, except that I think one of the interesting things about being a writer is I think you you also are writing things. Reasons that you don't always Entirely understand uh-huh. And that's one of the things That feels Peculiar about Putting a book out and Especially like this Because you realize that there are themes In your own writing that you didn't Realize were there I mean that's one of the Kind of scary things about reading Things you've written over a long period of time Is you do see themes coming up And connections That uh, are things that maybe you don't exactly want to know about your, yourself. Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. uh, but you, <laughs> you know, chose. I mean, to... really, this kind of question that I, I tried to put it out there in a sort of playful way. This thing about being preoccupied with men, but you know, the role that men have played in in my life. There's something unknown about it to me. Like, why? What did I want from them? What did I think? You know, they were going to to do for me. It's something I really couldn't entirely answer. So I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing about men for reasons that I don't entirely understand, I have to say.
0: Huh. In, in collecting um, these essays and rereading them uh, and choosing to package them in a book, you said you did a lot of rethinking. Uh, and so I imagine you learned some stuff, right? I mean, you're not quite the same as you were before you went into this.
1: I think I learned to, uh, you used the word deflect before, I mean, maybe be a better deflector of things. I mean, look, I'm enough of a Freudian to think that, you know, how writing happens, it starts out with sort of unconscious drives or desires or interests or fantasies or that kind of thing. And that... You know, then I think what what style is is a way of masking those things and presenting them in a a kind of smoothed-out guise. So I I kind of do think that's what the the enterprise is. And as you get more confident as a stylist, maybe you feel more adept at being able to hide the more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. aspects of what you're, uh, you know, dredging up.
0: Yeah, I you're um you're preaching to the choir there actually. Um, How so? Well, I have come over the years to see uh writing as a way of um clothing our nakedness mm-hmm. and covering our private parts in many ways, that's, even yeah. while exposing things but strategically.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it.
0: And you're you're such a assured stylist, that when I read you, part of the joy is being carried along by someone who really seems to have such great command of the vehicle, you know? So I'm not probing for, like, weaknesses in your writing the way I might in some other people's. Then, I think, based on what I just said, oh, yeah, but that's a strategy, too, that assuredness, that uh, the careful bits of self-disclosure, which are very disarming, they make me feel like, oh, I know enough about Laura um there's nothing hidden here, you know
1: <laughs> oh no i think there's a there's a lot hidden um and yeah it's i mean i think style is is fascinating just to think about as as a subject, like what are the constituents of of an individual style, and for me that um appearance of i don't know if it's effortlessness or a kind of you know however you put it, which was was flattering. Yeah, I sometimes think that that is completely in the nature of a defense. <laughs> you know, it's like to take the things that are painful or feel vulnerable and present them as a bit more lightly or ironically. And so, I'm, you know, you always, I think, feel about your own style. or I don't know, I can't generalize, I can feel about my own style that, I don't know, I suppose I worry that that becomes glib, you know, that I'm not getting deep enough with it because I'm too eager to kind of paper over some of those difficulties. I'm not sure if that made sense, and that is a confession.
0: (laughs) Oh, it it, it makes sense, and um, again, I'll say something flattering, that I feel like the the very awareness of that, your sensitivity to that problem, comes through in the writing. So I feel like you're pushing it, you know. You're always pushing it, and, uh, and I so much appreciate it. I really appreciate this time, too.
1: Thank you. This is such a like interesting conversation to have had. I, re- I really appreciate it.
0: Laura Kipnis teaches film at Northwestern University. Her latest book is Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation. This has been the Ongoing Investigation, known as the 7th Avenue Project. We're online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert men, Polly, men, and I'll be men, back men, next week. It's great to be on a ship with men and sail across the sea. Oh, we don't know where we'll land or when, but it's great to be with men. It's great to be with men. Because men can sweat and men can stink, and no one seems to care. Oh, we'll throw the
1: dishes in the sink and clog the drain with hair. Oh, clog the drain with hair. Oh.